Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning. Welcome to another episode of CCT Live, Kipka Times Live Facebook News Broadcast. I'm news editor Patrick Cassidy, and I'm here today with reporter Doug Frazier, uh, who's been on the show a number of times at this point. Doug covers the towns of Harwich and Chatham, as well as fisheries, sharks, and uh, other environmental stories for us and, and for you, the reader. Uh, today, we'll talk about a few stories you worked on this week, Doug, including some context uh, for the decision by the town of Wellfleet to buy more than 250 acres of tidal flats and a mile of beachfront, uh, as well as the death, uh, despite extensive re- rescue efforts, uh, of an East Ham man who was well-known in the music and outdoor sporting community here on the Cape. We'll also talk about the latest on the county's uh, fire and rescue training academy, including a potential move uh, for the academy to joint base Cape Cod, actually. And we'll go over uh, more on Congress looking to potentially save um, the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe's reservation lands and and their casino hubs there in Taunton. I'll then uh, touch on a look ahead for CCT Live itself. And you can take a look back at our past episodes and follow along uh, by going to our website or checking any of our social media. Uh, Doug, uh, Wellfleet made a, a big decision, a couple of big decisions, but the one we, you were focused on uh, came Monday. Town meeting had had uh, decided it the week before. This is the purchase of these title flats. Um, and you have some history with this in terms of covering this story going way back. Um, if you can kind of bring us up to speed, uh, Reader's Digest version, and then, and then what happened more recently. And, and then you brought some context to it in a story that you wrote for this week. So about 20 years ago, a group of shell fishermen off Indian Neck faced a lawsuit by an upland landowner who wanted to, uh, who claimed that he owned the tidal flats that they were uh, working on. They they had a license issued to them from, or licenses issued to them from uh, the town, but uh, but the research on the land had not really been done. It was kind of assumed that it was public property since it was in the intertidal zone, um, but colonial laws basically. Um, uh, not colonial laws, but colonial practice, let's just say, had allowed ownership of the tidal flats in order to encourage peer building. It's a kind of old practice that's not really necessary now. But property owners, main, you know, often maintain that ownership, especially along Cape Cod Bay, that the um, the, the uh, um, shell fishermen went out and got got it researched by a pretty smart lawyer and he basically found that uh, that the ownership rights to the flats had been severed from the deeds and was being held in this corporation that really uh, only had I think one owner left you know and they went and they bought it for twenty five thousand uh, dollars twenty almost twenty years ago which was pretty interesting because again there was this legal fight back and forth and it's during that process they'd kind of won uh, to a certain extent but then during that process again they found this out and like well we'll just go buy it what was twenty five thousand dollars they picked it up it for was which was for about two hundred and fifty five acres that included a mile of uh, beach that the uh, the local landowners had assumed was uh, you know theirs so yeah. so uh, that it was reaffirmed in a superior court decision in 2002 and um 
they named their realty trust how do you like them apples basically Which obviously uh, in, in your face, face to the yeah. to the guy who yeah. had sued in the first place yeah. so uh you know flash forward 20 years and um you know some of these uh shell fishermen there was four of them all together we're talking about maybe selling off parts of the uh the land now not all of it was being farmed for aquaculture mainly oysters now, uh, and uh, there was about 75 acres or so, but it represents about a third of the cultivated property in, in town. And uh, by cultivated, I mean being worked by aquaculturalists. And so it is a very valuable piece of the town's aquaculture puzzle. And they are basically, you know, uh, at least according to the most recent figures, the number one town for combined shellfish and wild shellfish and aquaculture landing. So now we, we have a, um, a situation where they they are contemplating selling so the town went to them and the town said like uh, would you consider selling to us they named a price of uh, uh, 3.4 million and eventually through negotiations um, the price came down to 2 million there was a 1 million dollar anonymous donor which meant that the town had to approve you know basically what essentially was 1 million dollars i mean the donor still has to come through with the money and they have the town is trying to clear title and that kind of stuff but the the, the shellfish owner, the aquaculture owner that I talked to, who was one of the original four, basically said, you know, like, we wanted to make it palatable for the town to buy it. We really want it to be in town control. Um, there is a movement at the state level by the Mass Aquaculture Association, and there's a bill in the state legislature right now that's sort of been lingering in committee since January. But it essentially says that that uh, in order to stabilize the industry a little bit more and, um, you know, make them more uh, appealing for loans from banks, uh, make the licenses an ownership thing where it has to be, it doesn't necessarily go back to the town for a lottery, which is what uh, like Wellfleet and other towns do to transfer licenses. Instead, it gets transferred by uh, either sale uh, or gift or, you know, just a straight transfer. Um, but it doesn't go back to the town, so the town doesn't have any control over it. So it becomes um, a little bit more of a commodity than what it is now, which is a grant, uh, right. you know, through the town. There right. were some concerns in Wellfleet, particularly with this idea, or there are some concerns with this idea, because I, I think the underlying concern there uh, is that it would maybe start, to, you'd start to see an increase in the prices for this land as it starts to become a commodity. You could see larger corporations coming in and, and well, buying the and, land. Well, and in part that was fostered in by the by wording in the bill that said it could be passed on to a they didn't just say to another person they said to an entity mm -hmm. and so there's always been a feeling in Wellfleet that at some point somebody with a lot of money uh, so I, maybe even a corporate interest would come in and basically would say like uh, we're going to buy up some of these people they'd offer like really attractive prices and before you know it it's no longer small businesses being run by Wellfleet uh you know, residents, and instead they're all employees getting, you know, lower wages, less benefits. The The feeling in Wellfleet is that this is one of the, uh, it's not exactly a year-round occupation, although, you know, people certainly Close. pay attention to it throughout the year, but it is one of those, you know, uh, jobs that locals get that they can depend on and the, um, and for, uh, you know, the, the people who are running the grants, they make a, a pretty good, 
you know, live, livable salary. And there's not that many jobs way out there on the Outer Cape where yeah. you get that. And, and it comes back and it's profoundly local. They mentioned the impact, for instance, that there were at least five uh, children in the uh, Wellfleet Elementary School who, whose parents either worked or owned grants. And, mm-hmm. and five is a lot in, in some of these small, small schools. Yeah. So. yeah, and certainly, again, that, that it's really evoking that uh, feeling of a local type of business. It's, you know, Wellfleet Oysters is like iconic in terms of mm-hmm. w- you're really nationwide when you talk about oysters. It's one of those names that, that uh, people know in other parts of the country, obviously, and in the world. Um, so to, to have that control taken away in any way raised uh, a lot of concerns. Town meeting uh, last week voted on this and approved uh, uh, this spending for this land. I mean, I think going backwards a little bit, I think the town was approached by some local shellfishmen kind of saying, you should go, you know, approach the the owners of this property. And that's kind of how the process worked out there. But then on Monday, uh, by a vote of 485 to 277 uh, at the election, which was necessary to approve the spending as a debt exclusion, uh, they agreed to the $2 million price tag. Again, that would come down by a million dollars via this anonymous donation that the town administrator has said he knows the person who's offering this. It's not a it's it's for real. Um, and uh, that would be you know, about uh, $23 in additional taxes on uh, a single-family home, kind of a median-valued single-family home in the first year of, of that spending. And again, over time, it would go away because it's a debt exclusion. So a big deal for the town. And that uh, mile of beachfront property, starts to you start to understand the pricing a little bit. I think people looked at the $3.4 million. They thought that was a little steep. But once you get down into this range, it seemed like, obviously, it was palatable to the to the voters. And, and they Well, and, it. you know, beachfront property is... A beach is actually kind of unused. It hasn't really been talked about all that much. I believe it's about a mile of beach, and it is next to a uh, town landing. I think it also gives some, uh, you know, them some access too to their grants. Guarantees the access, you know, as well. You know that they can take because they take trucks out to mm-hmm. the grants. Um, so uh, I think that it's. You know, when you throw the beach in there, you, you just don't see a beach come yeah, up for that, sale. That's not I mean, that's that's just, that price starts to look really good for the town in terms of securing that property. And there's the not a lot of parking there, so I don't think yeah. there's, you know. They're not going to have a lot yeah. of people going there. Um, uh, and uh, so people can definitely read more about that in your story from the other day, that particular issue. Uh, but just to point out, that wasn't the only big ticket issue uh, decided at Wellfleet Town Meeting and Town Election. Uh, there was a $7.5 million harbor dredging project that uh, was approved overwhelmingly. And again, that speaks to how important that harbor area there is in, in Wellfleet. That's going towards a, a project that's being, uh, I think, partially funded by the state and federal monies as well. Um, but they approved that as well. So they, you know, Wellfleet um uh voters uh decided to go forward with these uh spending items they thought it was important you know title flats oysters the harbor you know that is uh, a lot of what wellfleet is about so um people can read more about the other votes that were taken and there were actually 10 spending articles uh on uh town meeting and, and before the voters on monday and marianne bragg's uh, story specifically about those other uh decisions um, moving on here, the uh, um, Barnesville County uh, Fire and Training Academy, which is located uh, up in the in Hyannis here, um, north of the airport, really uh, has been having a, a a lot of questions raised about uh, contamination from the use of uh, firefighting foams. There, it's an issue that's come up across the country, and and certainly here in the state, and certainly here on Cape Cod and other areas as well. 
Um, but now there's a discussion that's underway about moving the training academy, which has been there for years and years, uh, to Joint Base Cape Cod. Um, and what they're saying, and, and what the Brigadier General Christopher Foe, who's the executive director of the base, has said is that really they have a lot of excess property out there at the base. The training academy has been having these issues. Uh, it really dovetails very nicely with the base's idea of providing more first responder training or more space for first responder training out there at the base. A uh, proposed uh, Cape Cod Municipal Police Academy has already, you know, gone forward and, and won approval to go go and start classes on the base as early as July. It was really, that was an amazing one because that happened very quickly. Uh, it was proposed and the next thing you know, they're, they're starting their classes in July. I think the county looked at that and saw the, how quickly that happened and said, well, you know, we need a place for this training academy uh, because they really can't operate the way they've been operating out there because of concerns with the Hyannis wells. In the last couple of years, the Hyannis wells have, uh, they've observed contamination within those wells and they've had to take them offline. It was a big deal a couple of summers ago. They had to literally give people bottled water. Uh, who were who were on uh, the well drinking water and shut those wells down. The the town sued the county. They they basically settled for about three million dollars, I believe. And so now they've been told or they decided uh, that they won't even use water out at the out at the training academy because the idea is the water kind of flows through and pushes these contaminations along at a at a quicker rate. Um, and so even using water is an issue. So they're looking at the base. It's kind of unclear how quickly this would happen. It still has to go through, you know, a, a bit of a process. Um, but with not even being able to use water at the county's uh, training academy uh, starting in the next month or so, uh, they estimate that it's going to cost them about $300,000 in lost revenue for fire departments who go there and use that area and, and, and pay for that service from the county. Um, and they say once they move to the base, they're looking to be very environmentally friendly, not wanting to. The base has had its own issues with contamination, I'm sure, uh, of water. And I'm sure everybody's looking at that and saying, what can we do to kind of contain any potential contamination? So an ongoing discussion, but of interest, we'll be following it going forward. Um, and then another uh, thing to move through quickly before we get to the kind of big story of, of this week that you're going to talk about, Doug. Uh, Mashpee uh, Wampanoag Tribe uh, has a bill that has been put forward in Congress by U.S. Representative uh, Bill Keating um, that would ensure that the tribe's reservation land and really their, their hopes to build a billion dollar casino in Taunton are, are saved because they're uh, certainly under threat. They had uh, lost a lawsuit, uh, a lawsuit against the Department of Interior, which had approved uh, having that land uh, taken into trust for the tribe, which is a total of 321 acres in Mashpee and Taunton. Again, the, the land to include where they want to build a casino. There was a committee meeting uh, yesterday for a, a, a committee, um, the U.S. Uh, yeah, House Committee on Natural Resources. It was their markup session, so to speak. They went through a bunch of bills. This was the first one they tackled, uh, and they ended up voting 26 to 10 uh, to move it to the House for a full vote. So that's a, a, a big step. I mean, these are all steps uh, along in this process. Um, but there's a lot of opposition potentially to this bill from Rhode Island lawmakers who are concerned about their uh, casino interest down there and the, the potential uh, uh, competition from the tribe's casino. Um, there's Obviously, opposition from other casino interests. There's opposition from the neighbors in Taunton who filed this lawsuit. Um, and there was even a, a suggestion by an Arizona Republican uh, in the committee to say, well, let's, let's move this bill forward. We can secure the reservation land, but let's say they can't do gaming at all on the Taunton land. <laughs> Obviously, that's uh, a big part of, of uh, why they want to do it. Uh, but the tribe you know, has always said the reservation land is important in itself. This guy was kind of offering this up as a... 
the idea being, well, it would move very quickly if you didn't have the gaming component, which is probably true. He also has had some uh, similar issues in his uh, home state, which you can see that he was obviously interested in setting precedent, if you will, and, and establishing that here uh, as a way of looking back at uh, the state of Arizona and what's going on there. In any case, it's not clear when the bill will be voted on in the House. Obviously, it's government. You've got the Senate that has to deal with it as well. There's political uh, ramifications here. Elizabeth Warren, who represents uh, uh, the state, obviously a big opponent of Donald Trump. Donald Trump, the president of the United States, has has often uh, come out swinging when it comes to uh, Indian casinos. Um, and there's there's just a very uphill battle here before they would ever get anything passed. The bill, if it was passed, would essentially say it's a reservation, it's law, and it would eliminate any future uh, legal uh, challenges to the reservation. They'd be able to essentially go forward with the casino. Meanwhile, they have some internal uh, uh, problems. The the uh, There has been a recall effort underway. And we just learned yesterday, Tanner Stenning, who does the, our reporting on the tribe, just learned yesterday that the tribe's election committee essentially looked at these petitions to recall the chairman and the vice chairwoman of the tribe and said the signatures weren't uh, or enough of the not enough of the signatures were valid for it to go forward. Seems like they can go take another bite at that apple, but uh, maybe it's not surprising that you know the election committee, which is part of the tribal government, uh, wouldn't uh, view uh, a recall uh, petition for the leaders of the tribal government kindly. Um, and so we'll see where that goes uh, at this point. The tribe is on shaky ground in terms of keeping its reservation land and keeping its casino hopes alive. Uh, Sunday, uh, there was, you know, as, as often happened, uh, somebody here in the newsroom heard something over the scanner, uh, the police scanner, and then we uh, went out. I actually went out with one of our photographers um, to a uh, uh, attempted rescue off East Ham. And, and Doug, you followed up on this. Um, uh, it didn't, didn't end well for uh, the, the person who was, they were trying to rescue, uh, but it did highlight kind of how these rescues uh, happen. And, and they're looking at whether or not there are other things that could be done or done differently. Um, what, what did you find when you were talking to public safety officials? Well, there's, there's definitely issues with uh, rescues that happen, uh, let's call it offshore beyond the surf line where you can't actually get in all that easily to get somebody, particularly when the water's really cold, but in the summer too, because Nauset Inlet is um, compromised. You know, the sand has basically uh, shut it down uh, for, um, for maybe hours around low tide. It's hard to get through, you know, and that's where most people uh, who were doing a rescue would launch their vessel from to try to get through the inlet and around to like where uh, an offshore area, like say at Nauset Light or Coast Guard Beach or even uh, Nauset Beach. Um, so most of those local area towns would launch from Town Cove and go through uh, Nauset Inlet. When they can't do that, um, or sometimes in concert with that effort, they bring in uh, people from uh, Chatham. The Harbor Master's Office usually would make that trip up to try to help out. And um, the problem there is basically the same. The sand is uh, uh, has like uh, kind of clogged uh, uh, both of their inlets. They have two and um and made them uh impassable even for relatively small boats at certain times you know and this rescue just happened to happen pretty close to low tide and and that's what they found when uh three boats set out from uh, town cove in orleans and ended up not being able to get through and uh, but fortunately chatham was able to get through and the coast guard came into with a plane 
and with uh, a helicopter, the plane uh, dropped a, uh, you know, a marker, not a flare, but like a smoke marker and some uh, life rafts next to the, the uh, David Harmon was the paddleboarder. He's 54 from East Ham. Um, not quite sure what actually happened uh, to him. It's a medical issue, I guess we were hearing, but, um, you know, they, they are doing an autopsy and, um, and they will uh, uh, find th out the reason why. But he had paddled out alone uh, right around noontime. Uh, the, the better waves had passed by, and he just said that he just told a, a local guy, I just want to get in and get wet, which is a lot of people say that. And just so happened that he was out alone, and um, he was uh, spotted from the beach uh, floating beside the board, and um, uh, they were able to call in. Uh, to uh, East Ham uh, Rescue uh, and Police and get the ball rolling. But, um, uh, you know, he was uh, he, he was a, a dead on arrival, I think, back at the Chatham Pier. Mm -hmm. But they, um, they basically were able to get to him. But it's, it's tough because they couldn't launch from the beach. They don't have lifeguards there this time of year. They do have a vessel that can launch from the beach, but... Uh, Orleans does, uh, but they did not uh, use that. The fire chief said that uh, it wasn't the quite, quite the right weather for that. I think they were trying to make logistical decisions pretty quickly, and they, they picked what they really sort of believed they could do, which was to try to get out through the Somebody inlet, which, which is a pretty fast run generally. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think it illustrates that these beaches are tough to to get to, you know, and, um, and, uh, with the summer season coming up, um, and the potential you might say for a, a shark attack, uh, you, you could, you could envision, uh, similar types, uh, a similar type of rescue with the same challenging circumstances with a very short window in which you could get to that person. If there was, for instance, bleeding involved, you know, uh, so, um, it's, it's one of those scenarios that, uh, beach managers and public safety officials kind of dread, but they're trying to find ways to, um, to get rescuers there as quickly, you know, as possible. And, and even looking at the geography, that was actually further south than a lot of the much more isolated beaches to the north, all the way from that area, all the way up to Provincetown. And while, again, during the summer, during the season, there's lifeguards, there's uh, people who are in the area, there may be more boats on the water who might be able to respond. Um, right. It's, it's, it's telling that, again, even at the kind of most southerly edge of the, the isolated beaches, you're still in an area that it's pretty far away from uh, a rescue, especially when you have these uh, tidal issues. Uh, by way of full disclosure, I go in and out of, of Nauset Inlet and have a, a mooring in Town Cove, and it is literally four hours around high tide that you're able to get in and out with a normal you know, engine and boat. Um, so two hours before, two hours after, mm -hmm. it doesn't leave you a lot of space, uh, you know, on either side. And this was at low tide. It was, it would have been, even if it was dredged, even if it, other things were done, it would have been very difficult to get out of there almost no matter what. Um, but Chatham, as you mentioned, having its own shoaling problems and, and the inlets down there having a lot of issues for the fishing fleet, that's a big deal. Um, but that was probably as quick. The planes and helicopters even takes, you know, they take some time to get up and running from, uh, from, uh, Coast Guard uh, base on Cape Cod in Joint Base Cape yeah, Cod. I think in this case they were diverted. There was uh, they were somewhere um, else. Yeah, I talked to somebody yeah. at the Coast Guard, and and um, I think it was the plane was in the area was actually diverted. So there, there. there was a 
it was uh, a relatively rapid response. They got there just before the Harbor Master's boat yeah. uh, and the helicopter came shortly right. after. And it's absolutely unclear if, you know, anything would have mattered. It was a medical incident yeah. from the sounds of the Cape and Islands District Attorney's Office has said they're, again, still investigating, but it appears to be medical. I believe David Harmon's sister said, we firmly believe that it was a medical incident because he was known as somebody who uh, was cautious, somebody who, you know, did all the, you know, did all the right things, wasn't going, it wasn't it wasn't choppy out there it wasn't you know the tough weather for paddleboarding a little early in the season for you know maybe somebody like me who doesn't know what they're doing but uh he was somebody who was fairly well known uh in the uh outdoor sporting community he worked at ems and hyannis he uh was somebody who was a musician uh, mm -hmm. and we have a separate story that marianne bragg wrote and i know you talked to some people for uh, about uh, who he was and he was somebody who kind of again his family had come to cape cod like so many of us who you know find cape cod so appealing and and part of that appeal is being outside being on the water and and he was somebody who um you know he, he was 54 but most people said that he looked younger he was you know he looked fit healthy, and yeah. uh, and that's the kind of lifestyle he, he had um you know a, bit of a renaissance man and that he was a guitarist Musician. for a local band and um you know i mean it's sad because it, it seemed like he really enjoyed his life and very much enjoyed his family and uh the group that uh uh is the sort of surf and paddleboard community in that area is very tight-knit and it, it hit that community you know um Hard because he was uh, definitely a, a local, as they would say. Absolutely. Well, uh, I encourage everybody to uh, check out uh, the rest of your story and to look at Marianne's story uh, about Dave Harmon uh, and and his death. Um, just a quick look ahead here uh, for CCT Live itself. Uh, we're going on hiatus. Um, I should say CCT Live is going on hiatus. Um, for a little bit, uh, but we're hoping very much to have somebody else uh, uh, sitting in the seat and doing this uh, uh, going forward. Um, so check back, check our old episodes, uh, certainly you can follow along, and check CapeCodTimes.com because one thing I noticed as I was looking at uh, now a year or so into this uh, this little experiment with CCT Live and, and talking about the news live on Facebook is that every week I go and try and find stories uh, you know that are interesting enough to uh, talk about on the air and inevitably with the reporters doing their work here and the photographers doing their work here I have too much I have so every every single day there's enough stories to fill up our time here and to talk about uh, at, at length and that's a, uh, a testament to the work that's being done in the newsroom behind us here and and every day uh, you know certainly for our readers um, so I'd suggest everybody keep their eyes out for a future um, you know version of CCT live uh, and and certainly capecuttimes.com. Uh, Doug, all the other reporters here are, are, you know, every day going out and, and finding the stories that matter and, and reporting them with context and, and talking to sources. If you have stories, you know, get in touch with them. Uh, again, it's, it's not just a slogan that local journalism is important. People talk about it a lot. Um, it's, it's a reality. There have been studies recently that, you know, you have more people to vote for when you have local journalism. You have uh, more choices at the, at the ballot box, that is. Your taxes can be lower because of local journalism. These are all things that have been found just uh, recently that uh, because of information and because of, you know, information that's accurate and timely and contextual, uh, you have, as voters, as uh, readers of the Cape Cod Times, certainly, and the people who do the work here, uh, you have more access to the information you need to make decisions. So that's just my little pitch for uh, um, local journalism. Uh, I will not 
be in this seat going forward and, and uh, you know, can anybody can check with me as far as my future plans, but CC2 Live, Cape Cod Times uh, will continue to provide uh, the stories that you rely on to get through your day. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Doug. As always, your, your stories are always interesting and, and, again, provide a lot of information for people. Feel free to point your friends to capecodtimes.com slash CC2 Live for our old episodes for this episode. Uh, go to our website all day long, all night long for uh, new uh, stories. Uh, Cape Cod Times is where news starts on Cape Cod until next time. Have a good morning and good luck. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.